Hi, you're with Jordan Sachs from Bold Partners and Sunday Capital, and you are listening to the Real Talk Podcast. And welcome to another episode of the Real Talk Podcast. Thank you always for our listeners listening. I just dropped a really good episode with EA Stribling, Elizabeth Ann Kivling Stribling. We call her EA at Compass, one of the frontiers of New York City brokerage world. She ruled and ran the Upper East Side co-op markets, Upper West Side co-op markets, along with tons of new development. So she, oh, one of the biggest interesting stories, my takeaways of that episode was she was one of the exclusive teams to represent what is now known as the Plaza Hotel, the condominium side. And her and her agent, Alexa Lambert, beat out a lot of the heavyweight brokerages in New York City, including Steve Stevens and Corcoran and the Elements and all the big guys in the world. So really interesting episode. I highly encourage you to listen She's also, just like me, a very avid fisherman. So we talk a little bit about fishing. It's not an outdoors podcast, but she is a very interesting, fact-filled individual. So uh, it's a great episode. And then my most recent episode is with my friend and industry colleague, Joe Fox, who is a owner-operator of a multifamily portfolio in Manhattan. And he has, uh, as a humble man, he is packed with information. So a great episode if you have not listened to that as well. However, today, I am pleased to have Jordan Sachs on the Real Talk podcast. Jordan was the co-founder and CEO and president of Bold New York, a residential real estate brokerage in New York City that, at its height, exclusively represented about 15,000 units booked in New York City. The portfolio ranged from pre-war walk-ups to some of the largest rental buildings in New York City, some of them as big as 1 million square feet, a building known as The Sky, located on West 42nd Street, developed by Moynihan Group. That was a trophy rental building. Another trophy rental building that you also represented is the uh, JDS developed American Copper Building, a two tower high rise building located in Murray Hill, right in front of the uh, 34th Street Ferry on the East River. The 10 year old brokerage was acquired by Compass back in February of 2021, which brought Jordan and his team of 120 agents along with his portfolio to add to the Compass team. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. We're going to talk about Jordan's beginnings. We're also going to talk about the present and the future of what's going on with Jordan in his life. Jordan currently, as far as his, his present life, he launched a boutique lending venture firm in Santa Monica called Sunday Capital, which specializes in multifamily loans ranging from $1 million to $20 million. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. Please follow Jordan. We'll put it in the show notes, his link to his company, as well as what he does in present time. And I also have personal questions about myself, about what he has done in his current uh, real estate operations as a landlord as well. So Jordan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for your time. You flew in from California. I did. And you're flying out today. I am. So I am. we're going to get in and get you in. To be here. <laughs> get you in and get you out. How does it feel to be back at the Compass office in New York City? feels great. Um, you know, you can't, uh, you never uh, lose the love for the energy that is in New York. And That's it right. feels full and people are everywhere. And I'm always pleasantly surprised with, with what's happening. Good. Yeah, there's um, no energy like New York City. Nothing. There is energy in Santa Monica, though. There's a lot you of know, energy in California. There is nothing. But it's different. There's no energy like New York. If you bring that New York energy to another market, you will hand over fist, outperform your competitors because <laughs> we just operate very differently. Better. Okay, let's send that yeah. clip over to our agents in Nashville and Vail <laughs> and Aspen. And I'm just kidding. I mean, they all work hard. But anyways, before we get into the meat of the questions, I'm going to go into a section called One Word Questions. So please give me your first reactionary word one or two words max on the following words that I will bring up. The first word is 
the New York City rental market. Forever strong. Okay. Rent control and rent stabilization. Confused. Confused is a great word. I would say conflicted, but conflicted. yes, con confused for sure. Third one, Brooklyn multifamily investments. Amazing. LA multifamily investments. Bulletproof. Street Easy and Zillow. A necessary evil. The exact same answer as our friend of the podcast, Julia Siegel, said. New York City administration policy towards real estate. Misguided. Sam Zell. Legend. Rob Rufkin. Leader. Compass. Innovator. Sky Builder. One of a kind. The Oriana at 420 East 55th Street. Incredible redevelopment. Okay. We're going to go into a new section called Hot Takes. So these are just questions. No wrong answers. Just answer them with your answer with maybe a few sentences. First question is, who is the GOAT of real estate? It's a very hard question. Um, there are a lot of goats of real estate. Right now, I would say Larry Silverstein for me is, is one of the ultimate okay. goats of real estate. Why is that? Um, a visionary, somebody who took risks unlike anybody else, and I think more dramatically changed the Manhattan skyline than maybe anybody else. He has a book out, I believe, Larry Silverstein, and he also has a film out with Costas Condolis. Mm -hmm. uh, it's out there somewhere. Okay, who is the top male and female New York City real estate agent. Top is always relative. Um, of course. Agents that I really admire would be uh, on the female side, Vicki Barron. Uh, on the male side, Danny Davis. Strictly for the, the fact that they have just built such incredible businesses on, on really all sides, from resale to representing buyers to small new development. And I've always looked at them as people that, uh, if you can create that kind of legacy and, and really hone in on, on specific submarkets that you're the best at, you could be an excellent agent. So. Danny's great. He's the first broker that I actually realized uh, publicly that he bikes all over the place. Yeah, you, you ever show up to a $20 million showing He's and biking. Danny shows up on the bike with a little bit of sweat. That's right. But he walks in and he knows every he knows metric of every That's sale right. and every building. And, you know. and I respect that so much because I'm also a biker and I bike almost everywhere. I did. I biked so. in the city for 10 years. Yeah, it's great. It's great, isn't it? It's the best way to get around. Okay, hot take question. Is Tulane a powerhouse in sports? Tulane is not a powerhouse in sports. We are a powerhouse in like having fun and, and doing New Orleans right, but unfortunately not. This year, however, we won a really big bowl game against USC. Yeah, that's right. Being did you did USC. you guys also beat LSU too? A couple times, maybe. Yes. Two we out are, of the ten. We are times. not even close to LSU. <laughs> okay. Not, yeah. But in the same division. Correct. Okay. Technically a rival. Correct. Although not necessarily LSU doesn't view, we don't view Tulane as a rival. That's right. Okay. Top TV or, or streamed show of all time. Breaking Bad. It's a good one. Top NYC restaurant. Yeah, it's hot takes. So I went to a dinner last night at a restaurant in Queens called Don Pepe's. Okay. And I think it's arguably one of the best Italian restaurants so I've been to. It's Italian. Okay. Um, I highly suggest making that trip out there. Okay. Where in Queens is this? It was. Um, is it one of the main areas in Astoria, or is it more out towards? Was ten minutes from the airport. Was, oh, okay. Like, All right. Like in the middle. It was <laughs> an incredible. We'll plug it in the show notes. Yeah. Top neighborhood in NYC to own property in Chelsea. Chelsea. Okay. Any specific area? Chelsea is broken down uh, into West Chelsea, Flatiron Chelsea. I call Flatiron Central Chelsea. Chelsea as, I and listen, every neighborhood has excellent reasons to buy. It's but a very I've, excellent. I've really, I think Chelsea's only, only grown and, and only gotten better. It's a very, incredible. very difficult question. Yes, I highly, highly respect my fellow colleagues, Mark and Scott. They have a, uh, was it 142? It's a lofted Chelsea slash Flatiron mm -hmm. condo. That's right, 19th Street. That's a really nice one. And also, you know, some of our favorite deals uh, in the past, uh, Lantern House on uh, West 18th Lantern Street. Great. Yeah, that's great. Okay. Uh, there's still, there's probably like maybe 10% left on the, sponsors, on, the, on the sponsor side. Best neighborhood in LA to own in? To own in? I love Los Feliz. Los Feliz, why is this? Is the border, border of Los Feliz and Silver Lake. It's on the east side. 
lot of connectivity to you know five other submarkets. It's become a really mature renter base. Super high end F and B. Yeah, it's just a, it's a really special kind of What's F and B. Uh, food and, food beverage. and beverage. So great, great retail, great food and beverage. Never really called it like that. Have you? Have you called it like that before? No. F and B. So I like very much <laughs> F F and E, furniture, fixtures, furniture, equipment. fixtures, equipment. Okay. Like we're gonna change out the F F and E in the pool area. Okay. So you learned something today. Learned some yeah. new acronyms. Okay. Best city or state to travel in in the United States outside of where you live in New York City? Totally depends on what you're doing, right? Indoor, outdoor activities. Well, this I, is a quick question that pertains to you. I love, love going to, to Colorado. So Colorado's got... Any particular area? I mean, we, we do Snowbird, or we do Snowmass, we do Aspen, okay. Boulder. I went to school and went there for a semester actually. Oh, oh wow, okay. Hurricane Katrina. That's a great uh, um, change up. Yeah, so okay. I, we, we love going to Colorado. Great. Best city or state to invest in outside of, of LA and New York? A lot of, of investment thesis today are very state driven, right? What's going on with Political the politics, what's going on with their economy, so their office supply, et cetera. We are finding that, you know, the Sunbelt states, for obvious reasons, are sure. great states to invest in as long as you're being cognizant of markets that have really inflated very quickly that will have a hard time over the next two or three years. Do you have a specific state you'd like to shout out or have in mind? You know, like we 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 think Austin, Phoenix, as an example, is not an opportunity. Sure. We think there are opportunities in North and South Carolina, as an example. The Triangle Raleigh area. Yeah. I mean, being Hill. close to the southeast and having that connectivity is really important. And finding you know markets that have been maturing longer than the kind of the last five year run. Okay, understood. And then supply and demand is obviously your biggest. I agree. You know, That's right. Very That's right. Well, so we have we got to know you a little bit, and I. I think the, some of the interesting answers that you've given, obviously the GOAT of real estate being there, Silverstein, I completely agree. Is there a particular project that you have seen that he has completed that made you inspired? So I was at, a, I was at a, a, an, event recently. an event recently and I was listening to, Larry was the keynote speaker and not to be cliche, because we all know what he's most known for and that's obviously the World Trade, World Trade Center. Center. And but listening to his story and seeing his initial vision and then his revision and how to rebuild this thing and the impact that it had on, on New York yeah, and the country, sure. quite mm -hmm. frankly, um, and his ability to, to take what I imagine was in his personal real estate life, the worst situation he's ever been involved with, 100%. and then do it again, Yeah, right? And when I, when I hear him talk about this, it doesn't seem like he's doing it just for the money. It feels like there's a, a real community effort behind it and a, and a real way to try to put back some of those pieces that were taken away from 9-11. And I, I just think it's, you know, it's very inspiring. Did he tell the story about, and I don't know how true this is, I'm sure there is, but he, the only reason why he survived 9-11 was because he was hit by a drunk driver? Did he didn't say drunk this? driver, he did not go to the office that day. He did not go to the office because he was hit by a drunk driver a few months before. I didn't know that. And he broke his leg, or hurt his leg, and he was at physical therapy that morning. That's crazy. Which, there's a story I read, I believe it was in The Real Deal, or maybe it was one of Larry's appearances that I was at at one point in, in time. But um, yeah, if, if that really was the case, yeah. Yeah, it's a really interesting uh, coincidence, I guess, as a blessing in disguise right. to be hit by a drunk driver. But I, I agree. And he's also done some interesting projects that... Uh, we've done lots. He's done lots of great residential projects. Of, we, we've worked yeah. on them, you know, as a firm together. And all those have been, you know, huge uh, successes. But huge win for you. If I think about Larry and, and his legacy, I imagine the, you know, World Trade Center in, in the financial district is probably an area he wants to 
leave is a big impact. Yeah, no, I, I, I understand that totally. So uh, you, I'm going to go into some of the deep dive questions. You may not know this, but I have had the opportunity to pitch against you while you did not know, or probably I didn't know at the time as well. And you have also have taken listings from me, which you may have not known or may have known. I don't know. Our main competitor was our client, Slate Property Group. Yep. Uh, shout out Martin Nussbaum and, Love those guys. and Steve Figari, which I don't think Steve Steve's, works uh, there. Steve's in Florida now. Yeah. Something, but yeah. Martin, still dear. both are still very dear. That's right. And also some of my colleagues had buildings that were taken away by you guys. So you guys have successfully expanded in various ways, up, down, north, south, east, west, and always. And I always admired the business model that you've had and admired the the capacity to handle so many listings and so many portfolios. So, Danielle, you remember when you started in the business, we had 401 East 50, 50th, 50th Street, that's right. 401 East 50th, classic building. And we also had a 244 with Jessica Wolf. I Hey, what was the name of 50th Street? I don't think they named it. Did we name no, we didn't name it. That was a low-rise walk-up. Yeah. So we did the with the website, we did the marketing, and we actually had a you know, great success leasing it up, but then it went to bold. And then we had 244 East 46th Street. Also, we did a great job, fully leased it out, and then it went to bold. So it was kind of like, you know, we got to work on it, and then and then it went to bold. We also had the chance to pitch through our, our uh, ex-colleague, David Snyder, who went to Duke with someone over at Green Oak, who actually did Slate, and Green Oak did... Uh, the Oriana, Correct. which was formerly known as River Tower, 420. Yeah. Yep, 420 East 55th. And the Oriana was at the time owned by ex goat Sam Zell, an ex legend Sam Zell, and who unfortunately had recently passed away. But uh, the building was developed by current goat, another goat, Harry McAuliffe. And I'll tell you a great story about this one. Let's go, go I, ahead, please. I, Let's jump in. I did, uh, when One Wall Street was going 50% rentals, yeah. my firm, Bull New York, was, was doing the pre development for that. Mm -hmm. At the same time, Oriana was coming into the picture. I was talking to Harry one time, and I didn't know that he developed the building. Okay. Okay. I don't know why. I just didn't realize it. And <laughs> I'm talking about homework. And I'm like, man, this building is low ceilings, weird light placements everywhere. I'm like, it is a mess. It is, you know. And he's like, you know, I developed that building. He's like, that is literally one of my favorite developments of all time. I'm like, Harry, I'm so sorry, I didn't know, but oh. we're gonna redevelop it for you, and it's gonna look great. But yeah, yeah it was uh, that's put put my foot in the mouth moment. For well, me, so. you know, at the at the end of the day, he does have, is known to have some uh, sense of humor. So he's I don't think one he of, he's one of the coolest guys you'll meet. I don't think he really yeah, cares. Uh, we had another great story on the podcast with Bob Nackle about how he cut a twenty million dollar check to buy a lot on 59th and Third Avenue for a hundred million dollars, and he got he got his attorneys to work over a holiday weekend to get it done overnight when there was a contract already out for ninety million dollars. But anyways, he's a, he is a legend and another legend in his own way. So you and I actually have never done business together, but we have actually competed on the business platform on the, on the business level in the business world many many times. And you have won pretty much every single time. So, you know, you all have done a remarkable job representing these insane rental portfolios in New York City. And as interesting as that business is, and I've been doing it for a long time, 15 years in the business myself, thousands of rentals done under my belt. As interesting and great that business is, there's a lot of risk. One of the main risks that I've experienced and encountered in my lifetime is they, they sell, they trade. So as Harry McAuliffe sold to Sam Zell that sold to Green Oak and Slate Property Group, they sell, they, they, they train, change ownership so you could have worked your tail off for five years, six years, and then you lose it. I've lost the Corinthian portfolio to Gaia Real Estate. 
right? Mm. So Corinthian, uh, Elliot Spitzer, Bernard Spitzer, mm. the developers had 155 units in the Corinthian at 338th Street, and they sold it for 150 million bucks. You know, a million, not less than a million dollars per unit to Gaia Real Estate, an Israeli firm that does their owner operators in here in Texas. And great company, but I lost it. So it's a you know, so it's a risky business. Also, the they tend to give out exclusives to these agencies, but they change hands for some reason or the other. Maybe because it's a cost-driven idea, or they decide to go in-house. Mm-hmm. So Slate, Slate Property Group, as you know, in-house. goes to Adobe Residential. It's an, it, Martin was, at, well, me, Gordon, Martin, and Steve Figari were at, at dinner in the Upper East Side one night, and he was like, whoa, you, know, you do a great job talk, blah, 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 but like, what happens if we just do a brokerage in-house? And I was like, well, you can, just a lot of work. And, and uh, not what you sure not what you do for a living. Like, exactly, not what you do best is be it, an owner developer and a broker. That's right. So, what you know? At what point, as someone you own property yourself, at what point? My first question is: Does it make sense for an ownership to do it in house, have a leasing team in house, or what point does it or not make sense? And also, the second uh, question is: At what point does it, is it worth it when these properties sometimes trade and like you? try to go after it, but they may have somebody already on their own. So two-part question, go ahead. First part of your question, right, which is really whether doing this in-house or or having an outside service. And I think it's very market specific. My general comment would be that you 100% will get better metrics by outsourcing this to a third party that professionally markets and leases apartments. And I don't put your typical uh, management company in that bucket. Yes, they all have the ability to, to do marketing leasing and they do that. I would say that is not what they're best at. If you're in a market like LA, Chicago, Miami, New York, not having exclusive representation on your portfolio, in my opinion, will hurt pricing and absorption. Fact. I've proven that for my own self in New York and now LA. LA, until we got there, was 100% uh, owner, manager operated. There was okay. no outside brokers, sure. there was no exclusivity. Mm-hmm. We got in the market and from a New York mentality of, all right, we're coming here to push rents and push pricing and, and, and make a, a stronger middle market, and I couldn't find anybody to do that. Hmm. And so out there, we had to essentially work with a, a third-party group to, to develop this type of a, of a bold New York-level business to represent you know, multifamily real estate portfolios in, in Los Angeles. And I'd say now he's, you know, they're up to 10,000 units. But um, in a market where there is high competition, where there is pushing pricing and absorption matters, complacency in the in-house model um, won't get you anywhere. So are you saying that it doesn't matter how big you are, it's always beneficial to have an exclusive third-party company that does just that to represent you? For example, pretend I'm Leonard Litwin, the owner of Glenwood Properties. Mm -hmm. Over 30 high-rise rental buildings, each average about 150 to 200 units, all over New York City. And, and how will you sell me that or prove to me that it's worth it to have a third party, like let's just say back in the day, bold, come in and represent it instead of doing it in-house? I mean, a lot of this you have to look at the business plan, right? In, sure. a, in, a, you know, in your example, Glenwood, they're in a business plan of maintaining occupancy, long-term holds, you know, legacy more retention, le- legacy. Never we sell. want a dollar versus none. We're not looking to sell. Keep the rents so I can keep you know, occupancy. In that model, we're probably not the best group to take over. Interesting. Meaning, listen, set it and forget it model's working for you guys and, and you like the metrics you're getting. Yeah. And I'm guessing you're benefiting from 
doing this operationally in-house, whether that's feeing your investors or whatever that looks like. So I, I get that. But if, if Glenn were to take out a new building and say, hey, listen, I need to get $96 a foot in Gramercy, I would say you should hire a third party like Compass or whoever else that, that just does this all day. What you find is that in-house, the operational capacity is limited, even at a Graystar or a national management company compared to hiring a Compass or an Element or a Corcoran who has built systems and operations around performing at the highest level on rentals. Right. So what is the strategy difference for some, let's just say Compass, to get that $96 a square foot versus someone in-house? Is it looking at other market comps? Is it different types of marketing? I think it's understanding the market differently. As a broker, you are seeing and hearing everything. As an owner developer, you are in your lane, right? And it might be a lane that you put blockers up because you don't want to hear the other stuff, but good, bad, or the ugly, the broker, right, the outside broker has more knowledge more understanding of demographics, as uh, of layouts, of light and air, of pricing, of square footage, um, and how that will be responded to by the renter than any in- owner and developer, in my opinion. So you're saying that the broker, the owner or developer should hire this third party, let's just say like the talk team or a bold, a bold team before it's even purchased? So we were brought in pre-acquisition. Pre-acquisition. Right, the goal of having us Market research. Market research. So I was, the, our team would start with, here's your comps, right? Here's, here's the amenity comps, here's the demographic, here's the income levels, here are the thresholds that we're looking to hit from a rent perspective. We're gonna work with you from helping you with your pro forma, speaking to the bank about this pro sure. forma to try to make sure you're oh. gonna get your debt, talking to your equity partners, making them feel good about the pricing that you've put into place. Right, and then and then ultimately, you know, doing the business plan with them. So you have an exclusive agreement already signed. Like I'm signing exclusive agreement. No, pre-acquisition yeah. is when the relationship per- portion comes into play. Okay, so you don't really. Make I'm them here to be your, to be part of your team. I don't want to be a vendor. I want you to look at us as your in-house, you know, an, in, an in-house component to yourself. We'll provide all the back-end research for you within reason. Obviously, I have resources that they don't have. You don't. Yeah. I'm going to get you comfortable or not comfortable with the purchase. And then I want to guarantee myself the, the consulting fee, the marketing, and leasing. I see. Understood. That makes sense. Is that what you question? did with JDS and Sky? Did that with Sky? Sky was a great, great Moynian, story. Because Moynian guys are very savvy in their own way, and they have residential guys also themselves. I mean, the family has tons of real estate agents. So they had nev- never done outside brokerage before us and yeah. Sky. I got a call. And this the goes, mark, they also have the mark, which is all in-house. And this goes to right. relationships and a big part of... I think other questions that you have fall to this, right? And how to, how to hold on to those relationships and how not to feel like every year I might lose those buildings because they float with the wind or some other broker came in the picture. It's because I'm so intimately involved in their organization. Mm-hmm. And that starts with as you're looking to, to buy property. So that's what you did with Moynian was you were so, you became invo- involved with Joe and his sons and So Moynian's a very different story. JDS would be a better a better example Mike Stern. of okay. or or Nathan Berman down in financial mm-hmm. district for 20 broad. We were on that project with Sarah Patton who runs your rental yep, building sure. here from, you know, basically acquisition on. We sat through mm-hmm. all SD, DD, all planning phases, and I think it's important to get that input um, from an outside brokerage or an outside consultant to say, "Hey, listen, I was told everything I think I need to do here." I might not do it, but at the end of the day, like they, it might come back to me to say like you needed to, we, we've told you all, all the pieces that need to be assembled here to get the price here, get the absorption or, or, or get the building filled. It's your choice to do it, but I want to say I told you so. Did you know JDS was always going to sell the American Copper building? You know, I always assume on lease ups that it's a two to three year job before I potentially lose the assignment, right? Mm-hmm. Our goal, unlike a lot of other brokerages that were heavily involved in rentals was continuing 
the business with people. Sure. A lot of people came in for a lease up and they were out. My goal during that process was to show a JDS as an example, what an intricate part of our, of the team that he did not have in house, that if you removed that team, you have to go rebuild it. Yeah. You got to pay for it. You got to oh, yeah. train it. It's, you got to rebuild it. So it's a job. Don't do that. And, and people like, like Michael Stern are like, that's not what we do. Yeah. I know how to build buildings. I know how to buy buildings. I know how to sell buildings. All the other stuff I need you and Graystar, whoever we're using, to be that team. Mm. Um, Interesting. You know, even Graystar here. We, we took over lots and lots of projects that they were doing in-house because they, they were really good at managing, but they really weren't good at understanding how to work in this level of the competitive market. Okay. So the excuses that you would sign with these developers, I mean, I'm assuming you say two year, I mean, two to three year projects. I mean, are, are they that long on the, on the contractual terms as well or? One year contract. One year contract. And you know what uh-huh. the, diff- the reality is? If they want out of their contract, are we going to go around suing owners and developers? No, it and, doesn't make sense. With yeah. that mentality, yeah, you're right, I yeah. never was put in that position. Sure, of course. You know, Bold represented, at the time, I, I didn't know this, but at the time of the announcement, uh, 20 Broad Street, and I think that was also represented by different, maybe they did it in-house. But now they're back to in-house again. There's another one too, the Hollingsworth also is a great start. They're Perfect in-house. examples. They're also in-house now. Or the Oriana obviously was late. You know, we go back a long time with that, but they're in-house. So what did they do to switch that? Is it because they, like Glenwood, they want Stable, to be legacy building? Stabilization. We get, the build, we get the building filled up and stabilized, stabilized. at the number, the, the price the per square foot they're looking for. Got it. And then we usually stay on for another year. And there's oftentimes we're all do the legacy leasing forever. But at that level of institutional client, they will have a, a third party, large, large third party management company in there. And it's just natural when you have 20% attrition every year, a couple of parts, you know, like it just makes more sense for them to do it with one group. But that wasn't the norm. I would say the norm for us is that we ended up outside of those three buildings, which we transitioned off of eventually. Um, and Sky as we well. We stayed on. We stayed on for Sky for five years. Five. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. That's a long time. And yeah. that was, and I love the Moynians, but that was a mutual, like it was time to. Sure. With regards to Adobe Residential, I mean, do you think as an ownership group, Martin, I think, is a very brilliant man that loves to start businesses. I think that's the thing. Maybe he did it as a passion. Do you think they would have been better off? I mean, this is obviously this is on camera. So, and I know that my relationship with Steve is, you know, done with his move, his transition out. But is that hindsight? Do you think they should have just? I mean, I love Martin, and I, I've told him this many times. <laughs> and I get a call from a developer every month, probably right. saying, "Hey, listen, I've now gotten to scale, or I have a ton in the pipeline. Like, why aren't I doing this in house?" Yeah. And, and they're typically sitting in a New York or LA type of market. And I, it's the same comment I had before. Like, you're just not equipped to do this. That's else. right. You're going to spend a year and a half figuring out how to put these pieces together and get the training and deal with employees and agents and like all the things that you're not good at. One question that I really was curious about. You also, you guys took over the Centro, 230 East 44th Street, uh, building that um, my friend, my dear friend, Martin Newman, uh, who was at town with myself back in the day, uh, had repped that building. And, you know, the our vision of bold was maybe they're doing it because they're cutting their commission did you guys take a month op on your end on every deal uh, yes you did um, okay we were not commissioned we were not a discount brokerage i got what i what we provided a service to get that full so you fee. did a one month now so so when you were sometimes like the central at, at one point the market was so bad you were giving out a piece of the, the co-brokering agent as well so so the developer you're telling me the developer the owner had given out two, two ops correct wow interesting this is a great, interesting uh, observation. You know, I can ask this question because back in the day, it was, you know, things were very tough. Were the rental market was tough back in the day. 2000, 
I mean, you, you remember this 2008, obviously you weren't here, but that was the worst time. But 2018, 19 were fairly slow times for sure in the rental market. And you actually said this with Peter as well uh, on his podcast. The amount of listings that business that you have done was so remarkable that I think when you were managing, I mean, you guys were so big, 15,000 units under representation. How? I mean, that's got to be a challenge. How did you structure your team to ensure that these accounts were kept in bold, right? Because people like myself are behind the scenes trying to find an angle to get into these buildings. You, what you, did you do? You, so What's I think the, the match? difference between bold and, and I'll use you as an example of a, a very serious Please. agent at a big firm. Please. My entire firm revolved around this business model. Mm-hmm. That's what we did, right? We had sales, we did all these things, but like at the well, end of the day- You did have sales. Oh yeah, we, we probably were doing 200 million a year of, yeah. of resale. We did some value. new development sales in Brooklyn, but this is what we did, period, end of story. And my pitch against you was, talk's great, he's got a great team, but like Robert Refkin's not interested, or you know what I mean? Inherently, mm. it, it stops with him and what ability he can do within his firm. Right. Granted, guys like you have the ability to do a lot within their firm, but your average agent was competing against me, the firm, right, on a legacy walk-up, right, that City or Corker or whoever at the time wasn't interested in pitching, but I came in at a firm level to say, I'm the principal of this firm, I, I want to represent your six-story walk-up, mm-hmm. and nobody took the time to do that. Right. Um, and so I think that was the difference. The entire firm revolved and operated around exclusive representation of rental buildings. Interesting. Yeah, that's a really strong angle. And so that when I talked about like, this is all I do and, and talk or whoever, this they do a little bit of this, that, and the other, and then their backstop is focused on a lot of things. And I'm telling you that like the buck stops with me and I am the backstop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, understood. Give us the early beginnings of Bold. How did you get started? Because I look at your LinkedIn and it did, you, you didn't really, no, you weren't a real estate broker. You, didn't, you, you weren't like Gordon who was an agent first or you weren't, uh, let's just say, Vicky Barron who was, I think she started off at like City Habitat or something, right? So you weren't that. So what, what, how much capital did you need to start Bold? What was the foundation of it? How did you, how did you get it's into it? It's a good story, thing? I think. Yeah. Um, I started Bold with Todd Jacobs who mm-hmm. is a 38-year best friend from Arizona with me. So we moved to New York together. He went to go work at Marcus and Millichap under Joe Coso and Peter, or with Joe Coso and Peter oh, Andre. Okay, so this is a tie. Mike Forrest was his boss at the time. I was in internet advertising, nothing to do with real yeah. estate. Todd and I lived together. Um, I wasn't happy with what I was doing. And I said, what are you doing? He's like, well, I'm actually leaving Marcus. I'm going to go buy a six building portfolio in the Lower East Side with, this, with Mike Forrest and we're going to go redevelop it. And I was like, well, that's interesting. Well, like, can I get involved, right? So I, I started working with them. We did a 250 unit, 10 retail redevelopment, meaning we destabilized, did the full, full song and dance. Sorry, and where was this building again? Lower East Side, Lower so East Ludlow Side. and Orchard. Ludlow, oh, okay, nice area. Like prime, prime, prime. prime. Yeah. Um, Mr. Purple. I called a big reputable broker. I said, hey, listen, I have $750,000 of commissions that I need filled, meaning I have you know six buildings. They're all walk-ups, but they're beautiful, and I need a real leasing platform. And they said, we'll give you John the agent. We don't do redevelopment or any of these types of things. I don't really have a department that I can give you, but I'll give you the agent. And I said, well, I have six buildings and 250 units. Like, this doesn't work. Yeah, one John is not going to do it. So I said to Todd, like, let's go lease our own apartments, right? We'll charge our fund. We'll make a little money, we'll lease certain apartments. And it was wildfire. I started leasing our apartments. We were averaging three to $4,000 a commission. We became, we leased our apartments in a minute. The neighbors started getting a hold of us. What are you doing? Why am I not getting those rents? How'd you get your rent roll there? Can you help me? Can you come look at my apartment? Can you tell me what I need to do differently to get there? And it dawned on us that like, 
nobody in the real estate brokerage community cares about this small middle asset class that was really coming up after, at the Well, they do. I think that Living New York is a Sorry, big presence there. At the time, though, this was 2008. Hmm, no, you're right. No, yeah, there, City bad, Habitats yeah. was the only group you would call. Yeah, Living at the New York time. didn't exist then. Didn't exist. That's so right. we said. Mizrahi Realty Group. Mizrahi was the only group we were competing yeah. with. And they were just. They weren't organized. They, and they way. do a lot of commercial too. They sell buildings. And we were, and we just wanted to do this. And we said, yeah. hey, listen, we know we're owners. Like we get it. I get what a hundred dollars more in your rent means under refi. Mm -hmm. Like there's a lot of things that I understand that your average broker does not get. Mm -hmm. Let me let me do brokerage with you. Like I'm gonna consult, right? I'm gonna do, like I said, let's work from pre-acquisition. I'll help you reconfigure the building, the layouts, the design, the everything. And ultimately I want to lease your apartments. I want you to pay me a one month fee. Mm. And 2010, we I mean, we did maybe a thousand deals that year. All, like we were called Forest Partners, just Todd and I in, in a, a stabilized office in the Lower East Side. And I said to him, like, it's time to go make this a, a real business. Stabilized office, huh? That's it was great. A, uh, it was a stabilized, <laughs> stabilized apartment. We used the office, like a walk-up building. No, stabilized like I would have to space. come in and like sit in front of the air conditioning, you know, the window unit, <laughs> yeah. and like take my shirt off and uh -huh. ban myself from walking up fifty <laughs> flights of stairs. And we caught the moment right. We caught this really young, aggressive group of buyers coming out of institutional environments that wanted to buy value-add multifamily walk-ups, okay? Mm -hmm. And again, nobody was positioned to help them. We took our ownership side and said like, let's just represent these guys. I don't want to represent John and Jill on the street renting. I just want to, I want the building to be mine. I want to have exclusive exclusivity. I want you to pay me a woman fee. And that was the business model. So, so you 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 didn't represent these buyers. Did you have like Peter work on them or something? Like I would have a relationship with Peter, and yeah. Peter would introduce me to a, a potential buyer. I would talk to him about the building. I just became market knowledge. Mm. I became somebody that you could go to that can help you figure out what to do with this building. Like any successful real estate broker, is what you did was you specialized. I just found my niche. Specialized. Everybody's like the barrier to entry is enormous. What are you thinking? I'm like. Nobody's just focusing on small assets exclusively. And let, let's just grow from there. Let's see what happens. If you want to become a successful broker, you need to have a friend to buy six buildings first. That's right. In the right time, in the right market. But that is actually but I fell a into, like, I fell super into awesome niche. And to your, your earlier point, like I didn't care. Real estate wasn't a passion. I wasn't raised in real estate. My dad sold life insurance. Imagine was, yourself becoming a real estate agent. I just wanted to be an entrepreneur. Yeah. And I wanted to go out and work really hard that day and make more money because I worked really hard. So how did Bolt start? So I, I start, we start, we were originally actually going to do town. We were going to be the oh. Astor Place town office. Is that right? Um, that deal did not go through at the end. So you were about to sign with Andrew Heiberger. Like we were going to be a part, yeah, like we were going to like, that was going to be our partner. office. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he's great. I loved him. And that didn't work out. Blessing. Started Bold 2011, 12th and Broadway with, I don't know, maybe 20 buildings. Bob Haskell was our first exclusive representation and then a group called Benchmark Real Estate Group. Mm -hmm. Bought and represented a lot of buildings, no? Or were they buyers of buildings? Just bought buyers. They were buyers, okay. Um, yeah, in the West Village. I know yeah, they, they a lot on 7th Avenue, 8th Avenue. Yeah. Yep. And I said, this is, our, this is our business, we have to do this. Mm -hmm. We can't focus on buying the way we were, we were used to and let's just go be brokers. And that took off. So call it 2011, we got started. During the process of getting the bold uh, brand going, we are, we were still buying multifamily, mm -hmm. so we were working with you. Other... Were bold was buying or you were buying? So we had other value add owners mm -hmm. that we would do deals with, and so Todd and Mark Silver, who's our uh, uh, a partner in our bold partners and Sunday business, 
we were doing fund to fund. I was, you know, you had a value add guy who said, listen, I need $2 million of equity. We're going to buy this building in Brooklyn. I would go to my investment group, which we created. Okay. And I'd say, listen, I'm going to raise the 2 million. I'm going to feed this and feed that and do this, that and the other. And by the way, I'm going to run the project with you yeah. and do the marketing and leasing. And you get the equity as well. And I got, and I put our, we put our own equity in. We did about 40 of those deals. Oh, so you put your own equity in along with your partners. I was raising money, the, putting a little bit of my own equity and like the wind was in our back. And you were the project manager as well. So you did everything. the whole thing. Yeah. yeah. Okay. You did. Actually where I met Julia Siegel. Is she was doing exclusive leasing at Myron Properties for this one value add group right. that we were doing oh, a lot yeah, of deals with, and I and they're like, you should take her. She's great. Mm -hmm. I did about forty deals here, mm -hmm. very under the radar, mm -hmm. mostly raising LP money. I was not a general partner, yeah. taking advantage of the brokerage and everything else. Bought a couple of deals on our own in Lower East Side. The climate started changing pretty dramatically. We saw the writing on the wall, I think, with the rent laws in, in two thousand nineteen. Some of those regulations. We were also brokers. It was a little hard to do both. Mm -hmm. You know, I had a very transparent relationship on off market deals. Don't you know? I didn't want that to muddy the waters. So I said to Todd, we have to divide and conquer. I know we want to keep buying real estate, but we also want to keep blowing this real this brokerage out of the water. What do you want to do? We've decided it's time to move more. And this was with Mark Silver at the time. And let's move markets. Um, we had a dear friend in Los Angeles. We're from Arizona and Texas. Originally, he called us. He goes, it's 20 years behind New York. There is 85% is legacy ownership. There is no inventory ever being added to LA. There is no building uh, capabilities. Like it's a ripe place for you to do value add. So in 2016, we bought our first building there, and we bought 120 since then. We own about 1,500 units, all value add, uh, 1910 to 2,000 types of vintage, mm -hmm. 15 to 30 unit buildings, full value add. Very similar to the business model that you were doing in Lower East Side. Identical. Okay, so let's go back to Bold real quick before we go back to LA. Stay in the, let's stay in New York for, for a little bit. What's some of the challenges? Have you had 120 agents when Compass acquired you? So what was the what was it before Compass even was it in the picture? You were still a broker of record yeah. for Bolt. So you were managing all of these rental agents that, and, and they looked up to you as, as a boss, but you weren't really an agent. I mean, how, were there any challenges there? Were there yeah, any I mean, managerial? Owning a, owning a real estate brokerage is a really hard thing. What was it like? It's, you have 120 people. We had our own employees, right? You had your own support staff. That's a different bucket yeah. of people. But your independent contractors, your real estate licensed brokers are, are entrepreneurs. Yeah. And they're our own business owners. Right. And they have expectations. And so you have 120 clients, right? And not just 120 people working for you. You have 120, 120 babies. People that you need to make sure are happy. 120 children. And I think the biggest challenge is what it was when private equity got involved in the sure. brokerage space. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know, and Compass yeah, is a sense. very prime example of how the disruption had to boutique firms. Like mm -hmm. There was a point where, where are you spending your money? Right, and what resources are you bringing to your agents that are going to somewhat compete with bigger firms? Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, where the biggest challenge is towards the end we, did you have any surprises? Like, wow, real estate agents are X type of people when you first started this brokerage and started recruiting? You know, my, I think the biggest issue in New York is that you can have a pulse and get a license. And I don't mean that to, 100%. to be no, negative. I say like, this all the time. There is a real lack you just, of You just can't be a felon. Can't be a felon. Yeah. And there's a real lack of qualification. And I, I never in my wildest dreams thought, wait, I can just be like honest and transparent and like me and I can be better than like 80% of my competition. And that was what was so exciting. Like, honestly, I was like, this is this is shooting fish in a barrel yeah. because yeah. you just have to be you. And so a lot of as I'm looking for talent and bringing on people and trying to hire the right people through that process was more of a cultural fit. Yeah. Can you talk to people? Can you communicate? Can you connect? Can you not lie? Can you not lie? Can you tell the truth? 
<laughs> you're, you're dealing with really emotional things in people's homes, people's lives, in their yeah. lives, and especially if they're paying a broker fee too, because that's that's a lot and of money. The, out we of get account. paid a lot of money to do what we do, mm-hmm. and you need to provide a real service, yep. and you need to be a real person. That's right. That's right. What What were some of the things that you would look for in a hire that you knew this person was going to be a pretty good real estate agent? My, um, you have to be hungry, but not too hungry. Meaning, you have to. I can't have you just saying I need to make money tomorrow, or it's going to. Oh, you know, that's you, There needs to yeah. be some patience. Yeah. Cultural fit was everything. I think Bold New York at the time, similar to Compass, culture was very important to us. Sure. You know, it's a family family oriented environment. So can we? Can you fit in? Can you? Can you provide an offer more than just the money you're bringing in the Did door? Did you see somebody that was early, early in the beginning, and then you really saw growth? You want to shout them out and like what you saw in that person early on? And oh my god, I mean, I think our top. By the time we sold to Compass, our top 15 agents had been with us for 10 years, yeah. give or take, okay. at Bold New York, which, yeah. by the way, they probably should have left years ago and, and grown their brand <laughs> at Compass. But, you know, we had a really unique business plan where I was able to feed them a lot, yep. meaning, like, I'm going to bring you these buildings. You gave them so much opportunity. Away, right? And granted, we controlled our margins that way and whatever else, but... There was no bigger lead for I them. would have loved to start under someone like you when I first started in the business 15 years ago with all the inventory already set and go and the path is already laid. And by the way, I'm going to give you exactly how to do it. Like I'm not Good. asking you to do anything more than to be a professional and show up to these buildings and guarantee yourself income. You got to just start by showing up and answering your call. That's right. Um, and then, by the way, let that be a lead source and grow your business from all of these conversations right. you're about to have at these buildings. Renters become buyers. And, become and if you think that renters don't become buyers in New York, you're, you're foolish. And if you think you're going to start start at ten million dollar purchase prices and not a million, mm-hmm. you're also foolish. That's right. Do you think million dollar listing has ruined a lot of careers? I think million dollar listing has skewed the impression of what we do. Yeah. I think it has hurt the value that we bring because it doesn't necessarily portray a lot of value. Sure. Um, but I think inherently it has exploded for these brokers and brokerages and it's been great PR for them. It's also I, brought I, a lot of uh, people into the industry. I think Maybe it's brought a lot of um, hobby uh, enthusiasts. 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 Mm-hmm. Like grandma and grandpa. Like, have you met Frederick Elkland? I'm like, <laughs> I, I have. You know what I mean? Like, How do you know Frederick's name? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. It's one of those things. Yeah. So, and it, so you know, t- at the tail end of this, this journey with Bold, how did Rob approach you and what was the whole story there? And you know, what made you pull the trigger to, yeah. do, to sell or I guess get acquired, right? Is that the um, Yeah, we got acquired. Right it wasn't a merger, it was more of an acquisition. acquisition. So I met Rob first started with Urban Compass. Mm-hmm. Um, him, him and Gordon, we, we met multiple times. I think at the time, like, I was actually competition for them. Yeah. I was, they wanted to do this exclusive leasing neighborhood specialist. Well, yeah, I mean, we were. I mean, like I said, you know, we c- competed against Oriana, which right. I'm sure you found out today. You were with Urban Compass. No. I, I was. I was you one were, of the. I was the third agent at Urban Compass, yeah. or second agent at right. Urban Compass. So and so we had a lot of dialogue, and we were we were friendly. Um, and then we kind of took it. We for years we hadn't talked because his business went in a completely different direction. I had been in touch over the year prior with them a little bit. You know, I it was coming. I was coming to terms with the idea that like, when is the right time to to get acquired? Mm-hmm. Not just for us, but for my agents, right, and for my business and not putting any, anybody in a position to fall behind when the momentum was still going strong. And then we had to evaluate who the pro, what was the right synergy for us. Bring 120 people to the door. I'm bringing thousands of exclusive listings, major landlord and, and owner representation, and it needs to be the right fit. And I need to make sure my team is gonna be able to be successful here. And so we, we looked at the environment and the landscape, and ultimately, you know, it was really hard to compete with what Compass had built. 
in the way that they were willing to integrate us. I think we were bringing this kind of legacy new development rental department or whatever you want to call it to their business, sure. which they really respected and gave us the autonomy to kind of run with it. So yeah, I mean, for us, it was synergies and making sure ultimately this, like regardless of losing the brand, that everybody in that brand can be successful. In Buildings that you started out with, are they still with Compass? Yeah. Okay. We've, the, only the, the, lower we've, side, the lower east side buildings. I'm talking about oh, six, no, no, six no, buildings no, that... No, uh, those are with Real New York. Ah, Real New York. I lost those. To my, I lost those. Uh, that, maybe that's one of my worst losses. Your own buildings. You lose your, your brokerage. So what, what, what's the story there? It just went... It, it's internal politics. It was nothing bad. It just... Internal politics. One so. of the investors knows real... It just was It's funny. I was just talking about Living New York. I was like, there's not a lot of Lower East Side players except for Living New York. And, and I forget uh, about the real New York guys. I don't know what's going on there. But. That's right. I, so looking at it from a compass's standpoint, if I was Rob and I'm looking to acquire Bold, well, I would want to make sure that the portfolio comes with. But as we just discussed 20 minutes ago, it's not guaranteed. These exclusives are one year at a time, like you said. They change hands, they sell, internal politics, as mm -hmm. you say. Mm -hmm. What percentage of the exclusives when Compass acquired, bold, do you think are still with Compass? I think we have not, I, I know that we have not actually lost an owner the only buildings that we have lost since Compass were coming out of a lease-up. 20 Broad, as an example. 20 Broad. Like In-house. Right. Or Sky. Or Sky, which I don't look at as a loss. I look sure. at as that a natural... A, if I lost it to Corcoran, it would have been a different story. Sure, sure. That was um, to, You still have JDS, which actually changed Josh Gottlieb. And so we... we yeah, and that was... So by the way, a perfect example of if you were providing the proper value, the new ownership will want to keep you. Right. And they don't just, care. They're like, why would I mess up what you guys they, have been it doing? It works. It's been working. The, the Performa, Performa was because of compass leasing and they were there. And What people need to ultimately realize is that if you use third-party representation and you complete your business plan, it's not just because the owner and developer did a good job. Sure. Like, that's just the reality. The amount of unbelievable refinances in sales in, in distributions and all these things that we have helped contribute to to these multifamily owners can't be... That's part of your value. It's part of your pitch. Got it. So, so at the end of the day, the acquisition made sense. Bold kept their clients. Bold became. Wait, let me let me answer one question because you okay. asked about this losing of business. That's right. If you have one client that's thirty percent of your business, you're going to be in trouble. Huge. What happened? Where by ten years in, I had gotten to a point where no client was more than five plus percent of my business. Well, Sky must have been a big part. I mean, it, we're talking it, almost a thousand units. But, it, but from a it, but it wasn't. It was a big part because it was its own, its own silo of 10 people. Like it was a big part for us, but from a income perspective, we had enough going on at the time that when I lost, when I when we turned, when we stopped working at Sky, it was actually like a great thing oh, for the okay, organization. Okay. You have to have a big enough pipeline. So you yeah. have to have new development happening at the same time. So I know within every year, and somebody like Compass looked back at our last five years and said, oh, listen, like you've maintained these numbers, whether you've lost some people or added some people, they're looking for consistency. Mm -hmm. And rentals brings annuity. And by the way, the amount of developers that are building large-scale rentals that are also building large-scale condos, I was having a hard time connecting that. Got the uh, guaranteed to get the rentals. Yeah. Like One Wall Street was a great example. Core, who brought us into that deal, didn't have a rental. Mm -hmm. And Macklow's like, I don't want two firms. Like, I right. could hire one firm and do both. Right, right. And ultimately, that's not how it worked. But right. Compass has that ability. And right. that was what we were able to bring. And they were being bring to us. The bold legacy will continue at Compass. How do you see the, the bold team currently at Compass continue to do what they've done? Or is the business model shifted? You know, I think that the difference, business model is not shifted. Because um, all those people that are managing those models are still in place. 
the agents have shifted, right? I think the agents have grown right. tremendously. You can't be on site for the rest of your life. And not even on site. You know, a lot of my agents were, by the way, making a quarter million bucks doing walk-up rentals. Not No problem. But there, there is, is, no, a, there is no. a, a bandwidth of how long you can do that for. And so some agents have created teams around it, right? Yeah. So they're not showing anymore. Um, but majority of our best agents have maintained those exclusive uh, uh, rental relationships and grown significantly. Their Good. Yeah, that's the way to do it. That's the proper way to grow one's business. And again, nothing against. Sorry, I'm going to take back what I said about being an on-site agent because both agents were not necessarily completely on-site. We had a on-site. full new development on-site division, and that's we had right. a full non-on-site. That's, division. that's right. So I want to preface yeah. that as well. Now, transitioning out to today's what you're doing, you 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 are you are an experienced buyer of real estate and. I want to know if agents, let's just say, have a little bit of capital, and now they want to partner up on an equity, on a, whether on a, a general partner side or a limited partner side, on the equity side only, whatever it may be, maybe on the lending side or hard money side, what should they look out, look out for? And is this something that they should be going into? I think the question you need to ask yourself as an agent is, can I be transactional for the rest of my life? Right, meaning that I am a transactional business. Well, I need to like, wake you know, up. Legacy I need brokers. To, I need like to make, Barrett, I need and to make deals, and if I don't make deals that year, I don't make money. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself as a broker, like, how do I gain wealth at the same time? Right, the brokerage business brings in cash flow, which is great, but like, how do I actually look at this in twenty years with what I, what I walk out with? And so, you would be foolish as an agent to not be investing alongside your owners that you work with. Mm-hmm. A, it's an easy way to do it. Buying that two to four family. Nobody understands this business as well as we do, despite maybe not understanding how the P&Ls work or how you're going to go raise the equity and debt. But most of the people I see that, that transition to having a hybrid mentality of I also invest in multifamily is done through their clients. Mm-hmm. Let me give you an example scenario, and I want to get your thoughts on it. Let's just say an agent brings you, a fellow industry agent brings you a house for $1 million. And you know it's worth $1 million. They buy it for... $700,000, but it needs a gut. They say, hey, can you lend me $200,000? What are some of the questions that agents should be asking? What are the questions, what are the pitfalls that they should be looking after? And you know, what are some of the, the let's just say, return rates that you want to see? I mean, there's two different sides of the business. So on the equity side of the business where I'm going in to buy this building with, mm-hmm. with somebody, you know, and you have a couple questions here, one, I'm a huge believer in partnerships. Mm-hmm. I think that you can't do everything the best yourself. And if yep. you have a partner that has an opposite skill set, that's huge. Um, so I think alignment with a partner is most important. What is their long? What is their short-term or long-term goal with this investment? Does that meet up with what I'm looking mm-hmm. for? Meaning if I'm looking to get my cash out quickly and there's a seven-year period, your whole period, that might not be the right yeah, alignment. That's right. Yeah. You're looking at track record, right? Yeah. You're trying to understand, has this person done this before? Mm-hmm. And then do you agree with the business plan? You know the market better than anybody else. They're calling you to ask the rents. Do you agree with the location? Do you agree with the current condition? Do you agree with where the rents could go if you did this, right? And at the end of the day, are you comfortable with where the debt's coming in? And those questions are, are answered for you and you like that. To me, that's a great starting point. Okay. On the debt side, in, in that home scenario, yep. It's all about how much am I in for as your lender, yeah. right? And we don't—we only actually lend on commercial, which we'll, we'll talk about in a second. Oh, but really? Call it a one million dollar multifamily property. Mm-hmm. Um, my biggest question mark is where's my basis, mm-hmm. right? So if it's a million dollar purchase price, I think it's worth a million bucks, but I'm lending at you know a seven hundred thousand dollar basis, and I had to take that back, which is not what we want to do. That's how you're judging 
on top of sponsor, ability to perform, yep. budgets, construction, construction costs, costs, all yeah. that stuff. And then eventually, like, what, how, what does the takeout look like? Because mm-hmm. in our, we do bridge lending, tradi- tradi- uh, transitional bridge lending, and that requires a takeout. We're there for one to two years until you go get traditional financing. So you're saying that every agent should start investing in building wealth at some point in their careers if they don't want to transact. If they haven't the started already. And is it better to start off as a the money guy, the financing side, or do you, or do you want to, or is it better to start off as someone that's actually on the deed and on the title? What's harder? What's more? What's one easier? is more of a long-term value play, and that's mm-hmm. the ownership side. And on the debt side that we do, it's a much more immediate. Income stream. Income stream yeah. um, what do you prefer to do? I prefer, you know, I like them both. One's very client services uh, focus, which is the lending the de- side. The lending, the debt side. is what I'm, you know, what I really like to do mm-hmm. and, and go out and service and, and, and bring in value. On and the, sending out money is easier than construction. <laughs> um, everybody wants your money. So yeah. that's, that, you know, and especially in a market like today where um, it's in a little bit of, you know, it's having issues, right? Interest rates are really high. Getting capital is really challenging. Well, um, that's good for you because your interest, interest, so, interest rates are higher. You could correlate a little bit with the banks. You're getting more money for your return. 100%. And I'm willing to give higher leverage than sure. most people. Yeah, um, sure. Because I'm also willing to understand your business plan. Mm-hmm. So I'm lending to people just like myself. That's you right. want to go do value You out. understand real estate better than some of the banks out there is what you're saying. Our, our pitch is that we understand real estate better than the bank. Mm-hmm. That is just a fact. When... You get into the multifamily side or the single family. What do you look for in a purchase that makes sense outside of maybe just the price? So mm-hmm. you're in LA. You're, you're. We're not talking about the lending side anymore, right? We're talking about purchasing. just an purchasing acquisition side. What do you look for? I mean, you look for beat up homes in a good location that's priced well. What are some of the criteria that are, maybe you can give the listeners some tips on, like what they should also even look for? Mm-hmm. I'm a value add person, uh-huh. right? So I don't I don't do new new construction. I buy older properties that need work. I look for long-term ownership. Mm-hmm. So I look for somebody that, a property that's been owned by the same person for a long time. I look for a property that has not been not been redeveloped, so I don't want to work off somebody else's design. Okay. So I want, you know, legacy type like of Like 1992 kitchens. Exactly. And, and I need a depressed rent roll. I need a good location, so we're very sub-market specific. Uh-huh. Um, I need the ability to probably double the rents with my work. Meaning okay. that if I put sixty thousand dollars in this apartment, I can take that unit from two to four thousand. We typically are looking for a fifteen to seventeen percent IRR. Mm-hmm. We plan a five to seven year hold, and uh, with the understanding that we could hold forever. The wealthiest of, of real estate owners in New York and LA and, and, and what have you uh, never sold. Right? Family legacy. Right. Why five to seven years? It's typically you know a lot of investors like that hold period. Um, we started long term capital gains tax. Yeah, that like it's just change. a realistic time frame to get through the business plan, to get the refinance, to get the distributions going. And like I don't want to be unrealistic mm-hmm. to say it's a two to three year plan. I think a lot of people in the value add space over the last ten years got very caught up in that two to th- one to two to three year business plan, and ultimately for fifty different reasons that had to be expanded. Um, our equity is very patient in long term, so. Um, there's not a gun to our head with that. And then I look for things like parking is a requirement. We don't buy you know buildings that are made of brick because we're in an earthquake area. Yeah. Um, so we have we have a thesis, um, but I'm looking to, to really be able to increase the value. I need long-term ownership that has done nothing but keep it occupied. Mm, got it. With regards to construction, this is a very tough topic because in New York City, it's extremely expensive, right? You have to have a million dollars insurance, EPA certified, lead-based paint workers comp, all of that. In LA, is it is the landscape just the same? And how important are these relationships for you with general contractors? Or do you have just one team or is it in-house? Like, how does that work? 
I use the example, we bought a building on Broom Street and we bought a building in Santa Monica at the same time in oh. 2016. Okay. And I far exceed, uh, uh, exceeded <laughs> the timeline on my LA property while operated from New York than I did on my New York property operating from New York. So LA is harder. Easier. Oh, I'm I, I ripped you through exceeded that. The I exceeded time. the time yeah, frame. It, it was easy. It is a much friendlier environment. Right or left, you want to call the government. They aren't interfering at the same level they interfere here. It's not the same requirements. It's not the same tenant organizations and, and nonprofit organizations looking for any mistake you make. Yeah. And that's the reason we went there was because doing business there is just a lot easier. Granted, you still have rent stabilization and rent control and permitting issues and all the things that any major city has. Navigating it is just much easier. You know, Elon Musk said the reason why he left San Francisco was because there's so much red tape in California and the, the warehouse that he made in Austin, Texas, the same warehouse in 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 the state of California would have taken 25 more years. So that's why I don't do ground up and that's why I invest in California specifically is because the ability to develop there is nearly impossible. Mm -hmm. Meaning you are not adding housing. That means that there will always be demand for housing and that's why you said in one of the original uh, answers uh, that it is bulletproof. I think it's bulletproof. We can all have issues. Massive earthquakes. I can't predict the future but from a supply and demand metric, from uh, pricing of single family homes, from job growth, from income required, like there's a lot of great things happening there. And in California, which New York is going through right now, has already gone through statewide rent control. Yeah. Which is gonna be a, just a massive hit or miss with whatever happens here. There we, statewide, you can increase rents by 5% plus CPI every year. Mm-hmm. So our attrition mechanism is by just buying a building of a certain vintage and just increasing rents statewide. You know, it's such an interesting business model. If you were to choose one state to do business in for the rest of your life, would it be in California? You know, again, I, I, I don't know. I think political environment will, will have a lot to, to say. Do you have aspirations to move to other states, for example? Yeah, about in the so we're, expand, states. we're expanding to, to a few Sunbelt states as we speak. Oh, so we, okay. we are making, we'll be about 500 units deep in, in, in all, shortly in, in the Sunbelt state. So scaling in California is very hard. Mm-hmm. Um, so like Bold New York, we just said, we'll just represent all these walk-ups. There we're like, we'll just buy a bunch of 15 unit buildings and then create scale that way. But now it's, you know, you get to these these bigger markets or these other markets where you can go buy a 300 unit garden style apartment. What are you trying to do in the next 10 years? Do you want to just keep growing your portfolio or do you want to get into other parts of real estate? Whether it's, again, I know you said you no grand up construction in California, but maybe in Austin or is, is there a goal here I mean, to become a Sam Zell one day? Or what's the, what's the objective here? If I can be a fraction of Sam Zell, I'll be super excited. Um, <laughs> you know, listen, my, our, our goal as, as a company is, you know, we want to be north of 5,000 units. Yeah. Um, we want to be in multi-state. Um, politically friendly states specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll never lose sight of California. I think we'll end up buying in New York again, mm-hmm. um, despite the political environment. Yeah. I'd like to have, you know, I think in-house management eventually with scale makes a lot of sense. And our lending business as a, as a counter to the equity business has been absolutely incredible. So I, I think in, if I was 10 years from now, if both these businesses were continuing to grow at the pace that they are and I didn't deviate from those business lines, I would be very happy. Well, there you have it. Tons of information packed. I know you have a flight to catch, so I appreciate your time. Jordan, please follow Jordan. I will plug all of his contact information in the show notes. And Jordan, thanks for Thank you so much for having a great time. Uh-